This is number 4062. Derek Prince speaking on The Christian Life. Message number 32 entitled, To Get the Most Out of This Life, Set Your Affections Above. I want to talk about how to make the best out of life. That sounds good. Uh, there's, uh, there's some things involved that don't sound so good, but I would have to say I really enjoy life more now than I've ever enjoyed life. I'm somewhat over 60, and uh, I've had a really a good life, an exciting life, an adventurous life. I've lived in many different countries, associated with many different races and kinds of people. I don't think I've ever had a dull life. It's not always been easy. But I really think it's better now than it ever has been. And I think I can share with you in part what's helping me to have a good life. I believe it should be that way. Scripture says in the book of Proverbs, the pathway of the righteous is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. So if we're walking in the pathway of righteousness, it should be getting brighter every day. Not easier, but brighter. I don't believe it's, it's easy to be a Christian these days. I don't find it easy. I find it challenging and exciting and rewarding. I'm sure that most of you young people, I don't think you can conceive the privilege you have of hearing the truth that you hear. You have no idea what it costs to get to that truth. Young people in their teens, converted and baptized in the Spirit and becoming members of some committed fellowship, can learn in two years what it took me 30 years to learn. And I'm not slow. <laughs> when it comes to learning you have no idea of how truth is being restored with unbelievable rapidity to the people of God how would it be to try and minister to people and know nothing about demons or deliverance I did that for many years I went out in the streets of London pulled in people off the streets and got them saved and baptized in the Spirit and never knew how to help them out of their demon problem. And I can look back at scores of people that could have been helped that never got where they should have got because we didn't understand how to help them. And so on with many other areas of truth. The areas of submission and commitment we really didn't know anything about. Even the responsibilities of family life really basically we were kind of trained to believe that if you neglected your family and were out preaching every night you were really serving God in a very wonderful way and how many preachers from that time ended up with bruised and injured wives and broken homes because they were misled so you thank God for the truth that's being made available to you. But remember this, to whom much is given, of him shall much also be required. So, you're going to be answerable for what you know. I'd like to turn to 
Colossians chapter 3. Read the first few verses. This first verse of Colossians has been in my mind for months and I never preached about it till this morning. Colossians 3 beginning at verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Paul says, if ye be risen with Christ, he has been teaching them that they are risen with Christ. He says, now if you accept that fact, that you are risen with Christ, act according to it. Don't look for your life on the earthly plane. Set your affection on things above. That's the next verse. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. That to me indicates a decision. It's a decision as to where you're going to find your pleasure. Where you're going to look for happiness. Where you're going to invest your time and your interest. Is it going to be in things on earth? Or are you going to set your affection on things which are above? There are the two realms. Verse 3. For ye are dead. Your life is hid with Christ in God. That's not the most literal translation. The Greek language has two, amongst others, two tenses. One is the perfect tense. One is the historic past. The King James translation has the perfect tense, but the Greek is the historic past. It says, you died. When did you die? Or did you die? When did you die? When Christ died, yes. Romans 6, our old man was crucified with him. When he died, that old rebellious nature in me died. That's a historic fact. Not a theory, not theology. It's a fact of history. Our old man was crucified with Christ. So Paul says, you died. Bear that in mind. And your life is hid with Christ in God. You have a hidden life that the people of this world don't understand. That, word, that passage always reminds me of a, of a quotation that I made this morning, and I'll repeat, from Lenin. And I don't normally go around quoting Lenin, but it, this says it so... So very, very vividly. Incidentally, let me just say this in parenthesis, talking about Lenin. I had the privilege of hearing Eldridge Cleaver give his testimony in January. It's a very beautiful testimony. Uh, how many of you have heard it? Good. Well, because it reminded me, because the crisis came when he was looking at the shadows on the face of the moon, sitting there in a apartment in the Riviera, the south of France, far from God, not having the answer. And as he looked at the shadows on the face of the moon, they took on the features of men. One was Lenin, another was Marx, another was Castro, men whom he admired and determined to follow. 
and then it turned to, turned to the face of Jesus Christ and he began to sob uncontrollably and the only thing he could think to do to stop sobbing was to pray and he only knew two prayers one was the Lord's Prayer and the other was the 23rd Psalm so he repeated them over and over again but that was really the turning point in his life but let me go back to what I was saying about Lenin Lenin said about communists communists are dead men on furlough and I, that, that was a kind of gripping statement and I said to myself why did he say that what did he mean by it and this is how I interpret it when you become a communist that's your death warrant essentially you've chosen to die you can be sure you will die you may die on a street barricade you may die in a jail you may die in a swamp in Southeast Asia but you're dead and until you actually do die you're a dead man on fellow well what really grips me about that is that I really believe that Christians should think that way we're dead men on fellow we're here but we don't belong here our life isn't here this isn't where our ambitions are you died and now your life is hid with Christ in God the Bible says that all men through fear of death are subject to bondage I really believe as long as we are afraid to die the devil has the last word in our life because he's always got a threat that will stop us doing anything effective you're going to die you'll be killed but when you're dead what can he do to you he's got nothing more to frighten you with it really is true once you have met and conquered the fear of death you're a free man and until you have you're not free and Paul says you died just face the fact your life is hid with Christ in God verse 4 when Christ who is our life shall appear there's three or four beautiful words there Christ is our life do you know that? my life is Christ he is my life I don't just get life from him he is my life Paul said for me to live is Christ I think if you're seeking healing there comes a time when we have to go beyond just claiming it by faith or even being anointed by the elders I know when I lay in a hospital in 1942-43 for 12 months one of the scriptures that really helped me was Christ is my life what can conquer Christ in me when Christ who is our life shall appear be seen then shall we also appear with him in glory meanwhile the world doesn't know who we are doesn't know what we are doesn't understand us it doesn't recognize us because it didn't recognize him <laughs> But that's all right, 
because we're living somewhere else. Our life is hid with Christ in God. When you're hid with Christ in God, what can touch you? There's nothing can reach you. Then it goes on, verse 5, Mortify therefore your members, which are upon the earth. You, in, in essence, Paul is saying you can't live in two different places at the same time. If your life is in heaven, then you've got to be prepared to die to life on earth. Now you can get scared about this, but I'm not going to suggest that you go away to a monastery or a convent. I'm not interpreting it that way. Put your life on earth to death, and then Paul says, mortify these things, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. It's really the emphasis is on where you put your affections. What are the things that really move you? What are the things that you really desire? Paul says, if you're really desirous of money, money is your God, and you're an idolater. There can be strong desires in us which bind us. For instance, I believe it's right for every child to honor his parents. But I've known children who placed their mother or their grandmother in the place of God and made an idol out of a parent. I've known parents who made idols out of their children and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. I remember once, some years ago, I was in the city and a woman had a child and a boy of about nine or ten in hospital with a kidney problem that the doctors couldn't deal with. And she said, Brother Prince, would you come and pray for him? And without really even thinking what I was saying, I said, Sister, have you ever surrendered your son to the Lord? And she became hysterical. She said, you mean he's going to die? I didn't say that. I said, have you ever taken your soulish grasp off that child and told God that he belongs to him? There's a kind of way of clinging on to things that destroys them. If you make your child an idol, God has to break that idol. If you make money your idol, God has to break that idol. So the question is, where do we set our affections? What are we deeply committed to? Where is our life? Paul says, you died to the life of this world. Your life now is on another plane. Set your affections there. Let's look at another passage. I'm just going to go through some passages in the New Testament. Turn to Philippians. the third chapter verse 17 Philippians 3:17 Brethren be followers together of me and mark them which walk so ye have as us as ensamples or patterns for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ do you think those people are professing Christians or not? Seems to me obvious from the way Paul speaks, he's talking about people who claim to be Christians. 
He says they're not the enemies of Christ, but they're the enemies of his cross. Why? What happens at the cross? The death. And then he describes these people. If you think he's talking about unbelievers, people who make no profession of being Christians, uh, you're, you're free to hold that opinion, but to me it's very clear he isn't. Many walk, of whom I've told you, even weeping, told you many times, and told you now, even weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. In other words, the whole level of their interest is on earth. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Just look two verses on in that chapter. I think you'll see. That's verse 20 and 21. For our conversation, our citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven. Again, where do we belong? Where's our home? Where's our life? In heaven. That's right. You know, if you become a citizen of a nation, you're entitled to a passport. And you don't have to have a visa. Do you have your passport? I'm a citizen of three countries. Isn't that beautiful? I'm a citizen of Britain. I'm a citizen of the United States. And praise God, I'm a citizen of heaven. And I can go to Britain, America, or heaven without a visa. <laughs> All right, our citizenship is in heaven. From else also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. That's the King James. But what it says literally, and I don't know whether this comes out in the New American Standard, it says, who shall change the body of our humiliation into the likeness of the body of his glory. So what are we living in now? A body of humiliation. This body is designed to humiliate us. Why are we humiliated? Because we rebelled against God. So God says you can live in a body that will keep you humble. You can live on the finest and the fattest food, but you'll just have to go to the bathroom the same. <laughs> There's no one who can stop his food from going corrupted. You can wear the finest clothes, but when you run and get hot, your body will perspire. And you'll need deodorant. You, you just can't, every, every day, this body is telling you you're in a condition of humiliation. It's the result of the fall. You better remember why you're in it. I'm not saying that the body isn't a glorious piece of mechanism. It is. But nevertheless, it's a body of humiliation. Now, if you make your glory out of that which God intended to humiliate you, then you're going against God. So when your glory is in your shame, and you mind earthly things, and your God is your belly, the Bible says your end is destruction. So we need to know where our affections are set. 
the Lord Jesus is going to be able to change this body into the likeness of his glorious body. That's wonderful, isn't it? Do you believe that? I believe it literally. I don't know any other way to believe it. I believe it's going to happen. The Bible says it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. One moment I look at you and you're the way you are right now. I blink my eyes and I open them again and you're looking like the Lord Jesus. Just take that long when God's moment comes. But meanwhile, remember this is a body of humiliation. And don't make it your glory. All right, let's go back to Second Corinthians. Chapter 4. It's rather strange, I didn't realize it, but we read part of this chapter the other night about life and death, and it's really along the same line again. But we'll move on a little further down. I like verse 15. For all things are for your sake. Did you know that? Did you realize that everything goes on is for your sake? The sun rises for your sake. The stars shine for your sake. Jet liners fly for your sake. Governments govern for your sake. Fish swim in the sea for your sake. Birds fly in the air. All for your sake. Why? Because you're God's children. And the whole of his universe centers around you. All things are for your sake. All right? Verse 16. For the which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Again, what do we have? The outward man, the inward man. The outward man is my physical body. It's perishing. Whether you like to admit it or not, you may be only 16 years old, but your body has already started to die. The processes of death are already at work in the body of every person in this room. And there's not one of us has the power to arrest them. We can delay them. We cannot change them. So our outward man is perishing. The Bible is the most realistic book in the world. Do you know it is my impression that most people actually never face the fact they're going to die. I really believe the majority of people never come face to face with the plain simple fact we are going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Our outward man perishes. But our inward man is renewed day by day because our inward man is in direct personal contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our life. And I get enough life from him every day within, I believe, to keep at bay the processes of corruption, sickness and death as long as God wants me alive. That's not forever. And I don't want to live one moment longer than God wants me to live. So every day my outward man is perishing. My inward man is being renewed. And I really believe again this is mainly the secret of divine health. It's being renewed from within every day. 
I believe there's enough resurrection life available to us now to keep our bodies strong and active as long as God wants us alive. But the secret of it is not so much being concerned about your body as being related to the Lord. Christ is our life. All right. Going on verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. You do realize that your affliction is light, don't you? Or do you? Or did you think it was very heavy? Well, compare yourself with Paul. Shipwrecked twice. Beaten 39 times, five times. Twice beaten with rods. Once stoned. Left for dead. Persecuted wherever he went. And he says, our light affliction. So what have you got to complain about? <laughs> our light affliction is momentary. But it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Afflic affliction works for us. Did you know that? It's on our side. With one condition, and this is very important. The condition is at the beginning of the next verse. While, as long as, we look. Not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, temporary, earthly, impermanent. The things which are not seen are eternal, heavenly, spiritual, forever. See, the two worlds. Now, how do we look at the things which are not seen? I'll give you the Bible's answer. Keep your finger in Second Corinthians. We come back there for a moment. Turn to Hebrews, the eleventh chapter. What's the theme of Hebrews chapter 11? Faith, that's right. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27. This has become one of my favorite verses. It, it records the triumphs of faith of many of God's servants in the Old Covenant. And in this verse, it's talking about Moses. It says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. See, we got the invisible realm. Now, how do you see him who is invisible? The answer is by faith. Faith enables us to see that which our eyes cannot see. And while we look at the things which cannot be seen, our affliction works for us an exceeding way to glory. But if you take your eyes off the things which cannot be seen and you come down to the realm of the temporal and you get wrapped up in that, your affliction just afflicts you. That's all it does. The condition that affliction works for us is that we have our eyes fixed on the things that cannot be seen. I'm going to read that, those verses again because the truth is so real and so practical. Verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now again, it's good to have a few Israelis here. Because Israelis know that the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which is directly related to the word for weight, kevet. 
Did you realize Paul was a Jew? And he was making a Jewish pun when he wrote. He said, it's a weight of glory. Why would you think of glory as being a weight? It is a weight. Few people can bear it. It says about the Lord Jesus, he shall bear the glory. If God put all that glory on you and me, it would crush us. But God is preparing a specific weight of glory that we'll be able to bear in the resurrection. Not now, but in the resurrection. But our affliction is working it for us now. As long as what? We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. See, all through these passages we have the clear-cut distinction between the seen and the unseen, the temporal, the eternal, the earthly and the heavenly. We're going on in chapter 5 of Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. There's the contrast. We've got an earthly tent, which is our house. What's the earthly tent? Our body, that's right. We live in an earthly tent. One day it's going to be dissolved. How many of you know that? You really know that body of yours is going to be dissolved. Are you afraid of that? It's really an important question. It really is. Because whether you're afraid of it or not, it's going to happen. And if your religion doesn't take that into account, it isn't much good to you. It really isn't. But, he said, we have another house, not made with hands, eternal in the heaven, a body, a tent, a home. So even if this one goes, there's another one waiting for us. Then he says, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. I think we groan not so much because we're miserable as because we are aware of the contrast between the best that earth can offer and what's awaiting us in heaven. There is a song that Pentecostals used to sing and not everything Pentecostals did was wrong, believe me. And it, there's only, I remember one line, it says, Sometimes I grow homesick for heaven. In fact, I remember two lines, where all the redeemed of all ages sing glory around a white throne. Well, I really could say that. I get homesick for heaven. There are times when heaven is more real to me than earth. Especially when I'm alone and listening to the music of Bach. God bless Bach. I tell you, I feel sometimes I can take off through the ceiling and just, just leave. And we won't go into that now. But we... All right, we're going back to the, to the situation with our home in heaven. My wife brought up, you know, a number of girls and uh, in, in, in Israel, most of them were Jewish girls. And one of them was called Rahama, which is a very beautiful Jewish name. She was a very spiritual child, very, very spiritual. She quite often saw angels. 
One day, my wife had a little sick baby boy that she took in, and Rahama said to my wife, she said, Mama, I saw an angel come and take Joseph. The next day, the boy died. But Rahama had seen it the day before. But one day, she came to my wife, and she said, Mama, she was nine years old at the time, she said, my house in heaven has fallen down. And my wife said, what do you mean your house in heaven has fallen down? She said, my house in heaven has fallen down. She said, I've got to pray. And I've got to fast. My wife said, well. And then she realized she was talking about the 14th chapter of John in my father's house. How many mansions? She said, I've, I've sinned. My house in heaven has fallen down. And I'm going to fast. So my wife said, well, if you're going to fast, I'll have to fast too. So they fasted all day. And my wife said, by the end of that day, the house was just filled with the glory of God. It was just like being in heaven. So remember, you have a house in heaven. And if it falls down, that's serious. So Paul says, now let's come to this in the scripture. Verse 3, he says, verse 2, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with a house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now, I, I think the New American Standard translates it a little differently. And I have great respect for the New American Standard, but I really think the King James brings the meaning out better in that sense. So how could we be found naked? What is Paul talking about? And I, you know, I've wondered about that at the back of my mind for years. And this morning, as I was preparing this message, the Lord, I believe, showed me. What would it be like to be naked in heaven? Well, keep your finger there and turn to Revelation 19 for a moment. Verse 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. That's the wife's business, isn't it? The bride's business is to make herself ready. And when this time comes, it'll be too late, too late for us to be getting ready. We'll have to be ready. How did she make herself ready? The next verse tells us. Verse 8, to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. That's the King James translation. I imagine that the New American Standard says it's the righteous acts of the saints. Is that right? That's correct. See, there are two words for righteousness in Greek. One is the general abstract word, just righteousness. The other is a very concrete, specific word which means a righteous act, an act of righteousness. Well, when you receive Jesus Christ by faith as your personal saviour, his righteousness is imputed to you. That's what we call imputed righteousness. But as you live out your life, you work out his imputed righteousness in your act of righteousness. It doesn't just end up with you having a new label on you. You've got to lead a new life. So you go from imputed righteousness 
who aren't work righteous. Now it says the fine linen that the saints are to wear is the righteous act of the saints. So how could we ever be left naked? If we had no righteous act, we'd have no fine linen. So Paul says, I really want to be sure that when I get up there, there's some material to make my dress on. <laughs> the disappointment to get up there and find there was nothing to make your dress from, wouldn't it? And if Paul took it seriously, I think we have to. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle, this tent, do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality, that death, might be swallowed up of life. We don't want to die, but we want to get rid of the mortal by exchanging it for the immortal. Verse 5, Now he that hath wrought us for the same, self-same thing is God. It's God that's made us that way. That's why we feel the way we do. That's why we respond the way we do. Because God has made us for what he wants to do. Who has also given us the earnest of the Spirit. It says in the New American Standard, the pledge of the Spirit. Is that right? The down payment. The guarantee. Let me tell you the same little story that I told this morning. My mind is right, right back in Jerusalem today. Uh, 1946, my wife and I were living in Jerusalem. We moved into a new house and we needed to buy material for the drape. So we went to the old city, to the little streets there where they had the cloth merchants and we looked at all the bales of cloth on the man's counter and we saw something we thought was what we needed for our curtain. So we inquired the price and I don't remember what it was but say that it was two dollars a yard and we needed twenty yards so that was forty dollars and he only had just a little more than twenty yards on the bale so we said that's what we want he said the price will be forty dollars I said well we don't have it all with us now but I'll give you five dollars now and I'll come back tomorrow and pay for the rest and take the bale meanwhile I said you take that bale off your counter because nobody else is free to buy it. You know the word for the five dollars? The word that's used here, arbon in Arabic, arbon in Hebrew. So, when Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, it's the down payment. <laughs> he says, I'll come back, collect the bale when I've got the rest of the money. <laughs> Meanwhile, he says, you're not for sale. You're withdrawn from the counter. You're set apart to me. So God has given us the down payment, and that's the guarantee. That's the way we know the rest is going to happen. Because the Holy Spirit says, that's right. That's how it's going to be. Stay ready, he's coming back. All right, going on verse 6. Therefore, as we, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. See that? If you feel too good in this world, you might not feel good in the next. Because these two worlds are in opposition to one another. And if we feel totally at home in this earthly body, there's something wrong with our spiritual condition. 
Now, I'm not preaching a message of misery. I think if you let me get to the end, I'll show you. I'm really showing you how to be happy. That's the truth of the matter. How to be a realist and be happy. <clears throat> All right. We are always confident, knowing that whilst we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We do not depend on what our senses tell us. Is that right? Have you made your mind up about that? When God says one thing in his word and the senses tell you another, which are you going to believe? The word of God. That's right. Because we don't walk by the senses. We walk by faith. Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, some of you are quite possibly quite young Christians and most of you are younger than I am. And I'm not saying that 20 years ago I would have felt exactly the way I do tonight. So, I don't want you to be under condemnation. But just bear in mind, there's something more. This world is not the ultimate. It doesn't have the answers. It never will fully satisfy, and everything it offers is impermanent. I'll tell you another story about a Swedish girl that stayed in our home in London. Very, very talented, beautiful young girl, a beautiful singer. She lived in our home like one of our daughters for about three or four months, I believe. So we came to know her really very well. She's always been a friend of ours ever since. And um, she grew up, the, the Pentecostal people in Sweden are very strict. You didn't go to the movie, you didn't cut your hair, you didn't wear lipstick. I mean, you were different. And it wasn't all bad. Believe me, they commanded the respect of the nation when they were right with God. The royal family of Sweden would go to their meetings, and that's something. But it's difficult for a young person, especially a rather unusually pretty and talented young girl, to grow up in that kind of setting. So Barbara told us this story herself. She said when she was 14 years old, she went to her father, and she said... Father, I want to thank you for all that you've done for me and the way you've brought me up and trained me. And I've always done what you asked. I've gone to church and I've done all the things you asked. But I just want to tell you, she said, from now on, I want to find out what the world has to offer. She said, I want to find out what my friends enjoy that I'm not enjoying. So I'm just telling you I want to try it. And her father was a very wise man. He didn't argue. He said, thank you, Barbara, that you've been willing to come along with us this far. And your mama and I will pray for you. And Barbara told i never forget this. It's as vivid to me as when she told it. She said, the course of that week, before the next Sunday, she had the most vivid dream of her life. And she saw in this dream two beautiful, brightly lit, brilliant cities. And while she was looking at the two cities, a very attractive, educated, cultivated man came. And he pointed to one of the cities and he said, let me show you round." And he was so charming and so cultivated, she thought, I'll go with him. And he began to take her all through the city and it was full of neon lights, just like 
a very large city in the world today. But as they were walking through the city, the lights began to go out, one after the other. And as she looked at this man, his countenance began to change, and she realized it was Satan himself. She found herself there, alone in that city, in the dark, with that man. And she looked across at the other city, and it was still radiant. Not a light had gone out. And she knew God had shown her the choice. The one is temporary, the other is eternal. The one is very bright, very attractive, very exciting, but it doesn't last. So Paul goes on to say, verse 9, Wherefore we labor, our ambition is, I think the New American Standard says, it's our ambition, whether we're present or absent, that we may be accepted of him, we may please him. Is that your ambition tonight? To please God. Then verse 10, which is the last verse I want to read in this chapter. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We. That means you and me. All of us, no exception. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And in Romans it says we're all going to be made manifest. Everything that there is to be known about us is going to be revealed. Now this is not the judgment of sinners. That's before a great white throne. This is the judgment of believers. When God starts to judge, whom does he judge first? The world or the church? The church. The time is come, Scripture says, that judgment must begin at the house of God. So in the judgment of God at the close of this age, the first group to be judged will be the Christians. Now, our judgment will not be a judgment of condemnation because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But it will be a judgment to assess the quality of our service and to determine the measure of our reward. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there will be some who built wood and hay and stubble and in that moment of judgment everything they've ever labored for all their lives will just go up to fire and they'll be saved like a naked soul. But others will have built gold and silver and precious stones and will be rewarded for their labor. So Paul says we must all appear, every one of us, one day before the judgment seat of Christ that we may receive the things done in the body according to that we have done whether it be good or not so good mediocre fairly good no, bad that's a very important thing what we do is either good or bad there's no half and half there's no grave if it's not done in the will of God, if it's not done in obedience, if it's not done for the glory of God, it's bad. And then Paul says, the eleventh verse, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Do you believe it's legitimate for a Christian to know the terror of the Lord? Apparently it is. 
I can preach this tonight because there's not the faintest desire in my heart to bring anybody here under condemnation. But I just want to acquaint you with the fact. That's how it's going to be. For me, for every one of you. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. All right, let's go to the last passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Praise God for that. I'd rather comfort God's people than condemn them any day. Leave the devil to do the condemning, let us do the comforting. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Where it says, speak ye comfortably, the Hebrew says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Does it say that in the, in the margin? Praise God for the margin. That's really something. You know, you can read the simplest passages of Scripture and they take on meaning. To me, it's marvelous to be able to speak to people's hearts. And I think God has given me a certain ability to do it in recent years. I'd like to bypass their heads and reach their hearts. Because when you touch people's hearts, you change their lives. All right, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. And I hope one day God will give me that privilege. I mean it literally. Speak ye to the heart of Jerusalem, cry unto her. The warfare is accomplished. Iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. There will come a day when Jerusalem's final punishment is complete. Then we have this prophecy which was fulfilled in part at least in John the Baptist. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight, the rough places plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. I believe that if we want the glory of the Lord revealed, we have to prepare the way of the Lord. And I believe those are the four things that we have to do. The valleys have to be raised up. The mountains have to be brought down. Our pride and our arrogance and our self-righteousness has to come down. But our humility will be lifted up. The crooked things in our lives have got to be made straight. The rough places have got to be made smooth. And then God says, The glory of the Lord shall be redeemed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken. And then the prophet gets his message. And this is what I want to speak about, and here I want to close. The voice said, Cry. And the prophet said, what shall I cry? And this is the message. All flesh is grass. And all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass wither, the flower fades. Because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it. Your New American Standard says the breath. But Spirit is really better. The word is ruah. 
Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You see again, what have you got? The contrast between temporary and the permanent. Is that a message of comfort? All flesh is grass. How many of you would receive it as a message of comfort? Let's state it, it's a fact. Whether it's a message of comfort or not, it's true. Everything that we see is withering and fading and dying. It's extraordinary how the mind of intelligent men can refuse to face that fact. Paul said in Romans 8, the whole creation has been made subject to vanity. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, the first verse of that book contains the word vanity five times in one verse. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You need to understand that the key phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes is the phrase, things under the sun, which occurs 27 times in that book. What are the things under the sun? They're the temporal things. They're the things that can be seen. And when you're on the temporal realm, all is vanity. Everything is impermanent. Nothing endures. Shakespeare began one of his sonnets with these words. When I consider everything that grows holds in perfection but a little moment, that this huge stage presenteth naught but shows whereon the stars in secret influence comment. That's vanity. Everything that grows Holes in perfection, but a little moment. The rose blossoms, fills the air with its perfume, and does what? With it. It happens to the animal kingdom, and it happens to human life. You can have a happy, long life, but at the end, you're going to die. You can live happily together as a married couple, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, but one day, one of you is going to go. All is vanity. All flesh is grass. The people is grass. It's all withering. But the most extraordinary statement is it withers because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it. In other words, it's God that puts it to death. God passed the decree. Why? Now I can tell you why. I mean, I know why. I've learned why. I learned it through the death of my wife. I would say it's amazing that I could live with her 30 years and never really grasp that she would die. But I think that's the way most people live. And I know probably it's the best way to live in a way. But when the Lord took my wife, I had to face these facts. Age 60. 
and be a realist. All right, and it, I look at I look at people. I look at married couples, and something in me says, warn them, tell them, not going to last. Is that true? Or am I exaggerating? Or am I unrealistic? No, I'm speaking the truth. See, the only one that can really face us with the truth is the Holy Spirit. And I'm not afraid of the truth. Because it's the Spirit of God that blows. Why? What is God aiming at? Why does God let us see everything so beautiful? And I appreciate creation today more than I've ever appreciated. I'm more interested in a sense in life today than I've ever remember being. And I really enjoy life. And those that know me pretty well I think they know it's true. But I enjoy it because I've learnt the lesson. I've learnt the lesson that there isn't anything permanent here. We're going to lose it all. And God has arranged it that way. Why? Well, let me try to explain it to you. I hope I can say it right. God gives us things that are beautiful and lovely and lovable and people. And after all, the most beautiful thing in the world is people. They're the biggest problem, too. But you can take all the flowers and all the trees and all the birds. In the last resort, there's nothing so beautiful as people. They're the crown of God's creation. And yet, they're on the way out. Why? Well, my answer is, I hope I can get it across to you. It's so simple that you could miss it. But my answer is, God has to get us interested in those things. To get us desiring what is good and beautiful. And then he says, don't set your affections there. Because there's something better up here. And he wings us from the temporal to the eternal. God doesn't disappoint us. He doesn't mock us. He says, just face the fact, the whole of this human life and race is corrupt. There's a poison at work. But there's another one, another level of life, another kind of life, that's pure, incorruptible, immortal, eternal, Never fades, never withers. Do you believe that? I mean, I do. I'm not hoping or wishing or thinking. I know it is. And so I don't expect too much out of this. I don't set my affections and the things on earth. My wife and I knew what it was twice to walk out of a fully furnished home and know we'd never walk back just right out into the street in the night. Now I have the most beautiful home with antiques and all sorts of things. But it doesn't hold me. I'm not bound by it. If God said walk out tomorrow, I'd walk out and never look back. But while I'm there, I enjoy it. I thank God for it every day. Every time I get back to my home, I say, thank you God for this beautiful home you've given me. I am really grateful. I believe I make God happy by enjoying it. I also, I have to say this, I, I, if, there, if there's one message I would leave, it's this, God is faithful. 
you can rely on him. He'll never let you down. My wife, if those of you who read her book, you know she went from a very elegant, high-class home where everything she needed. And for many, many years she lived a very, very humble life. Very few luxuries or facilities of any kind. And between us we both gave up everything we had. Career, family, home, money, everything. I don't say it to boast, but it's an absolute simple fact. We got to the... I was 50 years old and I'd never owned the house. I was 45 years old, I didn't own a car, I didn't have any insurance, I didn't have any money in the bank, I didn't know where I was going to live next, and one day I got desperate. I said, God, what's the end going to be? And I didn't know what God did, but I'm pretty convinced now, he said, just wait and I'll show him. And in the course of about five years, God gave me abundantly everything that anybody could ever materially wish for in this world. And when he called my wife home, he called her from the best home she'd ever lived in in all her life. That's God's faithfulness. I mean, it blesses me more than I can say. I don't care about the home. But to see God's faithfulness, that means more than I've ever expressed. I tell you, the devil never has the last word. The Bible says, he that sits in the heaven is going to laugh at the devil. <laughs> Praise God. Hallelujah. All right. So, what's the lesson? First of all, don't look for permanent happiness on the earthly level because it isn't there. All right? Remember you died when Jesus died on the cross and your home is somewhere else. And that's where you need to be at home. And when you've made that realization, you can enjoy life on earth as you never enjoyed it before. And thank God for every blessed moment he gives you. But you're not living here. You've got another citizenship. I hope your passport and his order is in order. Be embarrassing if when you got to Heaven's Gate they said you don't have the right visa, wouldn't it? For more information, for more information about Derek Prince or Derek Prince Ministries, please visit our website at derekprince.org or call us at 1-800-448-3261.